I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2011. It's a work of fiction which concerns zombies. It's the kind of book that I would absolutely never seek out on my own for pleasure reading. But it was sent to me by a book agent uh, arranging interviews for their client. And for some reason, I opened it up, took a look, and found myself utterly transfixed. I am so glad I read this book, and I am so glad that I got to interview the author, Mira Grant. Here is that interview, and I hope you enjoy it. I have enjoyed far more than I would ever thought possible a new book called Deadline. And I am surprised because it is a book, at least in part, about zombies. And this is not anything that has been figured very prominently in my uh, reading for pleasure over the years. Um, but this was a book I could not put down. I am so glad it, it crossed my desk uh, professionally. Uh, it is perhaps a book I would not have otherwise sought out, and I could not put it down. I loved it start to finish and uh, eagerly await the next book, which completes this trilogy, the book at hand called Deadline, the first book in the trilogy, which I have yet to read, uh, titled Feed. And uh, the very talented writer responsible for these books is Mira Grant. And uh, she is going to be joining us for the next few minutes to talk about this fascinating book. And uh, we will together explore, among other things, the incredible challenge of trying to paint a plausible picture of what the world would be like, uh, what the planet Earth would be like, the human race would be like, if it were suddenly confronted with something as awful as this. Uh, it is a riveting book, and again, it's called Deadline. It is a big book, uh, a paperback from Orbit Books, and uh, I am really excited about this chance to speak with Mira Grant. Mira Grant, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And it's not every day that we talk about zombies on The Morning Show, but uh, <laughs> I do want to just mention one thing, which is that uh, on a couple of occasions we have, but it has been about books which I'm sure you are acquainted with in which uh, already classic stories are altered to include zombies in them. And I've yep. spoken to a couple of different authors who have done that. And, of course, that's just one more instance of how this uh, genre seems to be uh, expanding in scope and, uh, and, uh, and galvanizing our interest. Um, let's maybe begin with just kind of an overarching question of what you think is going on here, that why this is a theme that uh, is, is being repeatedly explored in more and more intriguing ways. I think zombies kind of have a, a two-pronged appeal going for them. On the one hand, we've managed to humanize and to some degree sexualize most of the classic monsters. Vampires, it's not okay to just go and stake them anymore the way it used to be. They have feelings, they have friends, maybe they have dogs, we don't know. Um, werewolves, they're tortured souls now. All of these things that it used to be okay in a horror setting or in a speculative fiction setting to just say, well, that's the bad guy, it's clean cut, let's go, let's kill it, they have nuance now. Whereas zombies are a monster without emotion. They're something that you can set your hero up to kill or to go up against without concern that the audience will start to sympathize with the zombie, will start to feel for the zombie. So they're really our last blank slate monster. At the same 
same time, most monsters come from some degree of, of deep-set human fear. They all trace back to something that we are concerned about and want to personify in a way that we can punch. And the zombie largely represents the fear of loss of identity and the fear of disease, the fear that something is going to come for us even if we follow all the rules. In the modern age, with strange pandemics showing up all the time, with MRSA showing up, and with the increasing feeling that no matter what, you're going to wind up in one of these big, faceless crowds. You know, I was just in, in New York. If you look at the people shoving down the sidewalks, the only thing distinguishing them from a zombie mob is that they're calling taxi instead of moaning. <laughs> That's interesting. And I was just in New York City uh, not a week ago. And and at a couple of moments in time, I, I can't say I exactly characterize it as you just did, but uh, there was something, uh, in a sense, almost kind of mindless about some of these crowds, especially when you sort of saw them from a distance. Yeah. And uh, there's something quite intriguing there. Can you tell us a little bit about your own um, personal acquaintance with and interest in this genre and, and, and the topic of zombies? I mean, for instance, growing up, were you someone who saw uh, Night of the Living Dead or, or, or some other work that maybe sparked your interest? Uh, was anything in particular uh, at, at the heart of, of what has evidently really captured your imagination? Sadly, I think my earliest encounter with zombies was an episode of, a, uh, of an old Rubenstein TV show called Monsters where a teenage girl dated a zombie. It was, it was terrible. I grew up on a steady diet of horror movies and classic 1980s horror television. I wanted to grow up to be Marilyn Munster. To some degree, I have succeeded. Um, <laughs> the zombie movies were always some of my favorites. They're always just a lot of fun. And again, the monsters can only be humanized so far, which makes them guilt-free. So I ate those up with a spoon. And then as I got older, I'm really into the science horror. That's pretty much what I do for fun. And the question of how to make the dead walk, every movie had a different answer. So they actually became a sort of a, of a comparative research project. I'd find a new zombie movie and go watch it just to see how they thought the dead could get up and walk around. Hmm. Um, let's backtrack for a moment and find out a, a bit about your your origins as as a writer i mean for instance growing up as a young person was writing important to you and even at that point in time let's say in junior high or high school or college would we have had a pretty good indication that something like this was in your future uh yes actually the first major work i i produced i was nine i wrote a 12-page essay explaining to my mother why she had to let me read stephen king uh the path was set from there, I was writing short stories and novellas, which frequently ended with the destruction of mankind. Uh, my first novel, which I finished at 13 and will never be read by human eyes, was about vampires. So it was all kind of clearly mapped out, I'm sure. There were points where they could have shoved me in a different direction, but no one managed it. Hmm. And then at some point, uh, you took to this particular subject matter with the first book of this trilogy, a book called Feed, mm -hmm. which, among other things, I think, uh, manages to achieve something that, for a, for a very casual observer, might seem like an absolutely absurd possibility, and that is of making this seem plausible. And, of course, there are plenty of, 
of works that are written or films that are shot uh, that concern zombies that don't seem the least bit concerned with the matter of plausibility. I wonder if you could just speak a word about that. First of all, what's the difference between uh, a, a zombie book or a zombie film that doesn't care about plausibility versus one such as uh, Deadline, which does? I think the line is really science fiction versus horror. Um, when I had the opportunity to either show entrails or show chemistry, I went with the chemistry because I wanted it to fit together. I can, in a weird way, get away with more if I teach you that there are rules because then you will follow me even when I seem to be breaking the rules. A horror film frequently, or a horror novel, will just go with what gets the most blood on the carpet. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It just turns out not to amuse me for 800 pages at a time. I think the plausibility is very important. I think you have to get people to buy into your rules, because otherwise they are going to be so distracted going, well, how is that happening? How is that happening? That they're not going to follow the story as tightly as they otherwise might. I think for me, uh, as actually a, a fan of science fiction, but not particularly of, of horror movies, not really at all, um, what sort of ended up accidentally drawing me into the world of, of zombies, if you will, was when quite by accident I uh, stumbled upon uh, the film 28 Days. Uh, oh, 28 Days Later, yeah. Yeah, 28 Days Later. Uh, uh, I believe a British-made film, certainly set in London, and uh, which concerns uh, the out outbreak of something which uh, essentially creates this, but but done much more with an eye towards towards plausibility. And it never even occurred to me to put those two things together. I mean, for me, all of my experience before that had been zombies equals camp or zombies equal, I mean, over-the-top horror. Uh, but the idea of, of uh, creating a plausible story with zombies or zombie-like uh, beings, uh, I mean, it just scared the liver out of me. Uh, oh, yeah. Because it, it was just a, a new possibility that had never even dawned on me. And I wonder how many people uh, have similar experiences to mine of, of realizing that there is a whole nother uh, way to, uh, to, to enter this arena. Probably quite a few. You know, there are actual diseases in the world. If rabies ever goes airborne, we will have a zombie apocalypse. Only these zombies will be able to open doorknobs. Um, people are scared of diseases, and a lot of the scientific zombies are based on disease. And the trouble with that is that in a very real way, that makes them plausible. There are viruses, there are bacteria, there are even fungi that can make these things happen. And that's a heck of a lot scarier than something fell from space and now the dead are walking. For those of you just joining us, we're speaking with Mira Grant. And uh, the specific matter at hand is the second book, in her News Flesh trilogy. Uh, the first book was called Feed. The second book just out is called Deadline. And um, we're going to begin talking a bit about uh, this, this story and uh, what Mira Grant has done to craft such a powerful and, again, when I say plausible story. Um, so, the, and I've not read the first book. I, I certainly look forward to that at, at, at some point. Uh, all of this, uh, all of the events which we read, certainly in this book, spring out of something called 
The Rising, which I believe you set in the year 2014. Could I just ask you, before we begin talking about what happened with The Rising, um, about your choice of the year, of where to set this, how far in the future. Could you just tell us what you thought about in making that choice, which I think is probably an important one. Well, I wanted to have it close enough to the present day that I could hopefully mostly project where the technology would be. Um, And even there, I didn't go quite far enough in what we would be up to in 2014. Tech is changing so fast. If I had gone any further forward than that, we would have wound up with tech that I couldn't even describe. I've already had people ask why they didn't use Twitter more in the first book. You know, why Facebook wasn't more of a focus in the first book. Because when I was writing it, those weren't factors. Uh, We didn't want to set it in 2010, because then the first book and the second book would have all been coming out in what would be for us after the rising. And that would have been a little disorienting for some people. So instead, we're in that little narrow period before the rising happens, reading these books about after the rising. Um, The first book, Feed, which I hope you will enjoy, I don't know very many people that have read the second, not the first, is uh, centered around a political campaign. They're actually following the Senator Peter Ryman for President campaign across America. So we needed Feed to take place in a presidential election year, which is why it was either going to be 2010 or 2014, because that was what gave us the time gap between the rising and book one that I needed to have to, to hit the presidential election cycle. Wow. Very good. So tell us what the rising is, was, will be in the year 2014. In 2014, two separate groups of researchers are working on genetically engineered viral cures. In Virginia, Dr. Alexander Kellis is working on a cure for the common cold based on a modified rhinovirus, which is in and of itself a cold. Meanwhile, in Colorado, Dr. Daniel Wells and his team are working on a modified strain of Marburg, which actually hunts down and cures cancer. So they've turned a very deadly disease into a cancer killer. And they're working independently, and everyone's in human trials, and it's all lovely. And then an unscrupulous reporter finds out about Dr. Kellis' test and lets his cure out into the atmosphere. Unfortunately, Kellis hadn't gotten through his human trials yet. And uh, when the Kellis cure meets up with Marburg Amberley, which is the genetically engineered strain out of Colorado, the two combine and form a new disease, which is called Kellis Amberley. It cures cold. No one gets the flu anymore. It cures cancer. It raises the dead. Hmm. And uh, when this starts, of course, no one thinks it's possible. Because honestly, if the dead started getting up tomorrow, everyone would think it was a hoax. So everybody says, oh, that's not what's happening. And the news says, oh, it's a bad cold. Oh, it's an outbreak of rabies. Whatever. We don't know. Meanwhile, the dead are continuing to rise. Eventually, it gets bad enough that everyone sort of twigs that, no, really, it's, it's the dead walking. And then we have about two years of chaos, during which the humans and the zombies fight everywhere. Um, in the end, we won, because it was much more interesting that way. Hmm. Uh, in fact, at one point, uh, you have a character in looking back at that saying that the best time of that period was that, that first summer when basically... Uh, the whole world was united in in fighting this frightening foe. Uh, yeah. I mean, although that character goes on, I think, to say it was 
was maybe not an entirely positive moment in our history because of the way that it changed us uh, right. in terms of how we interacted with ourselves and, and with the world. Yeah, it is, it is very much a culture of fear after the rising. Everyone is afraid all the time, and consequentially we have, in that world, cut off more and more of our personal freedom and our freedom of movement, pursuing a safety that is frankly impossible. But, sorry, go ahead. You also uh, mentioned in, in particular the whole matter of privacy, that personal privacy ends up being one of the chief casualties of the rising, and not one, uh, you have a character saying, that many people take the time to mourn. So in other words, there is a dramatic loss of personal privacy, and to such an extent that, uh, and in this culture of fear, that, that people seem not even to realize what a loss that is. Uh, yeah. Explain a little further about some of the ways in which you paint this in more detail, uh, this new world uh, post-rising in which there seems to be no such thing as personal privacy. One of the ways that people can find out if they're about to become zombies is by running a blood test to check for seroconversion in the blood. You have to take a blood test to go anywhere. You have to take one to get on the highway, off the highway, into the mall, out of the mall, into your own home. And all these test results are being recorded. They're all being transmitted. Someone is tracking them. Someone knows where you are at all times. People haven't been chipped, but they still have a pretty darn good idea where you are, what you're doing. Everyone's computer equipment transmits constantly. There was recently a bit of a, of a brouhaha about some Apple equipment that was transmitting back to Apple. Uh, without the knowledge of its users? Well, after the rising, everything is transmitting back with the knowledge of its users, because that's just a little safer. Hmm. People have to register their paths if they're going anywhere more than about two to three miles from their home. You actually have to register a route uh, with the Highway Safety Commission, and they'll know where you're going, and if you deviate, you may well get picked up for having gone off a pre-registered route, because that's a sign that something could be wrong. Um, in my world of today, it's a sign that my mother has spotted a yard sale and we're going there instead of taking our way to Sunday brunch. But things have changed. Everything is online. Almost no one goes out. Almost no one interacts in person. And when you have that much of humanity centered on the Internet, any illusion that there is privacy on the Internet is just gone. Hmm. You can lock things, but someone will get through them at all times. And it's pretty well established that the government is also watching and monitoring these channels just for signs that something could be wrong. Hmm. The, the narrator of, of the first book is uh, someone named Georgia, and mm -hmm. uh, the narrator of the second book uh, is her brother, uh, Sean. Yeah. And um, I believe both of them, uh, Sean mentions... Uh, were essentially raised on the Internet. I mean, they are of such an age that that's essentially the only world they know. And, uh, and that's kind of intriguing to think about, too, to some extent. Of course, that's, that's true right now. But uh, yeah. the events in your books, of course, take that, in a sense, a frightening step further. Yeah, they were both orphaned during the Rising and adopted by the Masons, who are adventure bloggers, for lack of a better term. They are the reality show stars of the modern day. They raised the kids as co-stars more than anything else. They were a good way to get good media moments. 
So Sean and Georgia genuinely have no idea what it is like to live in a normal life where a closed door means the cameras go off. Let's talk a little more about this this uh, notion of action bloggers. I really love that, especially because I happen to, to enjoy blogging, but I sure don't do this thing called action blogging. But I, I love the term, and it, it uh, and and one can very easily imagine a world um, where such a thing might might occur a great deal. And of course, uh, one of the uh, images it brought to my mind is that of tornado chasers. That in a sense, your action bloggers looking for dramatic footage uh, to immediately transmit to the world are uh, roughly akin to uh, the tornado uh, chasers of 2011. Yes, absolutely. Um, to tornado chasers, to Steve Irwin and other nature show hosts. Um, in fact, one section of the bloggers call themselves the Irwins in his honor. So we're talking again about Australian Steve Irwin, who, who was uh, unfortunately killed during... Uh, one of his wildlife expeditions, but of course, many of us remember his television show where he's letting tarantulas crawl over him and uh, going eye to eye with alligators and so on. So tell us more about the so-called Irwins uh, named in his honor who populate your book. Well, the blogging community is divided into three sections. The fictional, who mostly stay home and write fiction. The newsies, who are tornado chasers and political reporters and such and the Irwins, who are our true action bloggers. And their entire careers are built on going out and poking zombies with sticks. That's just what they do. Some of them do travel logs. They go into areas that people have mostly abandoned. Um, for a big chunk of book one, one of our Irwins, Dave, was unavailable because he was in Alaska with a video camera, just going, look at all these things you've never seen. And uh, they are generally reviewed as, as kind of insane because they will go out into zombie-infested waters just to see what's there. But they are also, in a very real way, the only people in this world that still have an idea that there's a world outside the wall. Hmm. So they are brave enough and or crazy enough uh, to venture out into the world um, and to confront these dangers, and, and not for any real sense of, of valor, uh, but simply f for the attention it will generate and for the excitement uh, that viewers will enjoy, uh, even if it means the end of their lives. Yeah. One thing you do to make uh, all of this it adds just this little extra layer of, of plausibility uh, are some of the details that you, you share in the book about the work of these action bloggers. I was especially fascinated by the notion that, uh, that these bloggers might each have a black box. Tell us about the blogger's black box. Your black box is basically like an airplane's black box. It'll have a copy of your files in it. It'll usually have a copy of your will in it because a blogger's will is just as important as a journalist or author's will. That's what's going to give ownership of all of your intellectual property and of your literary estate. Uh, it'll have anything you couldn't publish, any secrets that you needed to keep that you're figuring, well, I've been eaten by a zombie now. The people I work with are going to need this. And it may have a couple of personal possessions, a couple of special things that you don't want to have lost, uh, assuming that whatever kills you has taken out the majority of the things around you. Black boxes are made of relatively indestructible material. You can set them on fire. You can drive tanks over them. They'll stand up to it. So sometimes when things go really, really wrong with a news team, 
that's the only thing you get out. And most bloggers do make it a habit to update the files in their black boxes daily or weekly. Uh, you can get fined when you go in to renew your license if they check your files to find that you've not been doing regular updates because it is in the interest of the people regulating Internet journalism that things not get lost. Hmm. I want to read just a quick passage which talks about the blogger's black box. Every blogger keeps a black box in case something goes wrong. No, that's not right. Every good blogger keeps a black box in case something goes wrong. Every sane blogger keeps a black box in case something goes wrong. Every blogger uh, you should be willing to work with keeps a black box because every blogger you should be willing to work with understands that things go wrong isn't an if, it's a when. The idea behind a blogger's black box is basically the same uh, as a black box on a plane. That's where we record the information that we need to survive when nothing else does. One of the th reasons I love this detail is because it's, it's one of those things where you have to really think about this. You have to really reflect on it. And, and only when you really reflect on a world full of action bloggers does this detail sort of come to light. But if you're just going to very casually and sloppily paint this world, uh, that's the kind of detail that's just not going to, that's just not going to emerge. Uh, so it, to me, this is evidence of, of how carefully and thoughtfully you have reflected on this world you have created. Well, thank you. I spent a lot of time there. We're speaking with Mira Grant. We're talking about the second of three books which form her News Flesh trilogy. The second book uh, is called Deadline. Uh, you have very potent, memorable characters. And uh, uh, I am very intrigued, especially in, in the way that they feel so real, uh, uh, an intriguing mix of strengths and weaknesses and so on. And in particular, there also is a, a very gray, vague line between the good guys and the bad guys, and evil and good. Uh, I mean, after a while, I mean, we, we have this sense that, that nobody is, is, is perfectly noble, um, uh, and, and, and it, it's just that kind of complicated world in which uh, we find ourselves uh, in your book. Can you talk a little bit about the process of crafting characters and of what you think about as you weave together these complex characteristics in each of them? I don't think anybody really thinks of themselves as evil. No matter how bad the things someone is doing are, from their perspective, the odds are very good that they are doing them for a reason. Now, that reason may be because the talking fern told me to, but it's still a reason. For them, it justifies what's going on. So part of the process of creating a character really is figuring out what they do that other people will regard as bad or will regard as selfish or wrong or, or whatever, and why they do it, what makes it not wrong for them. Um, one of the central characters in Deadline, Maggie, is basically a Paris Hilton cognate. I mean, she, her family is incredibly rich. She could have had anything she wanted, and what she wanted was a crumbling old farmhouse, and a bunch of rescue dogs. And from everyone who knows her's perspective, that seems that's selfish and stupid. Why isn't she out 
making huge changes in the world? Why isn't she out partying? Why isn't she doing something other than sitting with her dog and writing poetry? And from Maggie's perspective, she just wants to be left alone. She's not being a bad person. She's just staying out of the way. Even the bad guys, most of whom you know, I'm not going to name directly, they have reasons for what they're doing. They're doing everything they're doing because they think on some level that it's good, that it's the right thing. And as long as I can keep a hold of that and keep a hold of the fact that from the perspective of everyone around them, they may be completely wrong, they'll come across much more as real people. And that helps me work with them. Hmm. One thing I really liked is that um, I, th- I think bad science fiction uh, is is full of villains who are villains from the moment they walk in the room. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, we 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 know really in an instant that that this person is is up to no good, or this person is ultimately going to be uh, the person who causes far more harm than good. And right. uh, I I love the fact that that those kind of of pat judgments are just not possible with uh, nearly all of the people that are that are in your novel. I appreciate that. Um, it's, it's hard, but I think it's worth it. What's kind of interesting is that the main bad guy, as it were, in the first book, you can kind of call the moment he walks on the screen, but that's because the people that you'll, you're dealing with more in Deadline, where you're seeing that there's actually a large web of people controlling this conspiracy, wanted him to be. They were trying to set up a bad guy that could be knocked down so that people doing the knocking would think they had closed everything out. So it's a really difficult set of checks and balances, and I appreciate that it's working. Mm, it really does. Something else I appreciate is that uh, amidst all the uh, all the, the high-level science and the uh, the action-packed uh, sequences involving uh, running from the zombies and this and that, that, that uh, amidst all of that, this is also, uh, at its heart, a very human story about the narrator, Sean, and the grief he feels uh, uh, about the, the, death of his, uh, the death of his sister, Georgia. And um, at one point you say, uh, in, as he thinks about his uh, regrets, um, even saying goodbye isn't enough. There's always one more thing you should have had the time to say or do or ask. There's always going to be that one missing piece. That's one of the most interesting things I think I've ever read about what grief is like. And the idea that just because you got to say goodbye at someone's hospital bedside, that that somehow ties it all up neatly and gives one a a, a complete sense of closure. Uh... You paint a picture which is much more complicated and realistic than that. Can you tell us more about how you thought about your main character's grief and how you wanted that to uh, live in the book? So um, my, uh, my grandmother died a couple of years ago, which I think is something most people can say about a relative or whatnot. And she is the one that had always made sure I kept writing, even when it looked like I should stop. And when I published my first book, she was already gone, uh, and I actually sat down and cried for about two days because I couldn't tell my grandmother that I had, had finally sold a book that I was going to do what she'd always wanted from me. 
I actually wound up calling her old number and uh, telling the woman that picked up the phone that this had been my grandmother's number and I just needed to tell someone. And I told her and I felt better. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it, it really helped. It also helps that it was, in fact, another old lady in Grandma's old apartment complex that got the call, so she understood that the guy's crazy. Um, but that was kind of the approach I took with Sean, that even when he thought it was done, if he could ever think it was done, there was always going to be the one thing she wanted for him, the one thing he wanted for her, the one question that they both kind of wanted to ask, and then the answer would just come along. And it's going to keep hitting him over and over again forever. Because I think that real grief is like that. It gets less horrible, but it's like having a broken arm. It's going to ache a little every time it rains for the rest of your life. So you have the voice of Georgia essentially living inside the head of, of, uh, of Sean. I mean, they have these conversations. Uh, and, of course, that gives uh, Sean the, every appearance of being a bit crazy uh, because of all he's been through. Uh, can you just say a word about where this idea came from? Well, first, he is crazy. This is not a supernatural world. He has actually said goodbye to sanity and moved on. Um, and mostly it, it came from Sean and Georgia spent a lot of time preparing for what would happen when he got killed, for, for how she would move on when he got killed. And neither of them ever prepared him for a world that didn't have her in it. The two of them didn't grow up as brother and sister so much as they grew up as the only students at the boarding school from hell. They don't know how to exist without each other. I'm reasonably sure that had things ended differently at the end of Feed, Georgia would have shot herself after the funeral. The only reason Sean doesn't do that is because he has created this Georgia in his head. He's basically created an imaginary friend for himself. And it's a hard line to walk because the Georgia in his head can't know anything he doesn't know, but kind of has access to information that he is not consciously remembering. So I have to be very careful that she doesn't say anything that wouldn't have come up in a class he attended or wasn't mentioned in an earlier scene um, that he would have been there to overhear since normally Georgia has information Sean doesn't. Mm. Boy, you're really underscoring a, a yet another way in which the writing of this kind of book is so hard when, when you care about something like plausibility. And, and, and care about something like consistency, which I guess is one of the key ingredients of, mm -hmm. of a complex story like this being, being plausible. Um, and, and when one is sloppy with those kind of details, as tempting as it might be to be a little sloppy and let a few things slide, um, that's when you begin to lose your hold on us. Yeah. Uh, I, think that the tr I think that as an author, the worst thing I can do is break the rules without using a loophole that I showed you earlier. If I show you, look, it works this way, this way, and this way, except, you know, A before E, except after C, any of that, then I can get away with it. But otherwise, you're just going to sit there going, that's, that's not how it works. You can't do that. There are no unicorns in this world. You can't have unicorns save them. <laughs> I'm, I'm reminded, for instance, of, of watching... Uh just to grab one of many possible examples, uh, the last Lord of the Rings movie. And one of the things that just drove me crazy is 
having uh, magical beings beating off uh, attacking hordes you know, with their staff. I mean, it's like they suddenly have forgotten how to cast a spell, and it's because you know they want to have this big elaborate fight sequence. And, right. uh, and 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 but it's like why would that person do that or not do that at that moment in time and, and there's scores of other examples you've carefully obviously tried to write this book and have succeeded in writing with with great care something else I think that really makes uh, it works so well is that you have characters at certain points uh, making reference to the horror movies of the past mm-hmm. um, talk a moment about this why you think this was important to do one of the things that drives me craziest about zombie literature, whether it be science fiction or horror, is the number of times we are put into a world that looks just like ours. We're asked to accept that this is a world that is exactly like ours, and no one has ever seen a zombie movie or heard of a zombie movie or had a friend who sang all the songs from Evil Dead the Musical and forced them to learn the rules of zombie movies. Um, it just doesn't make any sense, especially not with the kind of characters that usually show up in those movies and in those books. So I really wanted to have a world that was as grounded in today as possible. And that means that right up until The Rising, if it happened in the media, it happened in their world. With the exception, obviously, of my books, because then we're getting really confusing. <laughs> but everything else, it had to be there or the world would not hold up. Right. And in fact, that's part of how we survived when the zombies came, is that everyone who'd ever seen a Romero movie said, shoot for the head. Hmm. And uh, you have one character uh, at some point saying, no one makes horror movies anymore, and uh, the character of Maggie, who you've already mentioned, said, yes, they do. These days, everything's a horror movie. But mm-hmm. again, these events play out in a world which once upon a time created such horrific images for the screen. and right. uh, And now they are... Uh, amongst us. Exactly. I appreciated how uh, you took a bit of time with um, one of the most troubling and complicated matters, and that is this matter of of shooting, uh, of when one would be allowed to shoot and uh, what would stand up in a court of law and so on. Um, I want to write, uh, read just a quick passage and have you, you comment. Uh, this is as the characters are, are, uh, are making a, a, a trip uh, trying to, to, to track down a scientist that they want to meet. Even in today's safety-oriented society, there aren't lights on most of I-5, just around the exits to inhabited areas. Those are also the places where the guard stations are actually staffed and where nice men with guns will be happy to help you go and get yourself infected. Good Samaritans, every single one of them. Thanks to the laws regarding infection, they don't even have to be certain before they shoot. Anything that can stand up as reasonable doubt in a court of law is enough to excuse them putting a bullet through your skull. The farther into the wild you go, the less reasonable that doubt has to be. I mean, there's something really chilling about that, and and we can well understand how that is in fact exactly how such a scenario would would play out. Tell us a little more about characters going a little further into the wild, which, of course, at one point really happens in your book. Oh, yeah, they they go way far. The thing about 
the culture of fear that's grown up around this infection is everyone has the zombie virus. It's in you, it's in me, it's in the dog. Everything mammalian has the zombie virus. Everything over 40 pounds can become a zombie. And no amount of telling people, well, you have to be bitten, you have to be exposed, there are things that have to happen, is going to stop them from being afraid. That if you walk off the clearly marked path, you walk 10 feet into that forest, you're going to somehow mysteriously turn into a zombie. It's just going to happen. So bit by bit, they've set up the hazard zones, they've set up the lines, and those lines are very strictly drawn. You go one foot over that line, you're in deeper waters now. And suddenly coughing can be grounds for shooting you. Suddenly tripping and looking like you've been uncoordinated can be grounds for shooting you. Um, If they don't see you coming and you're coming from deep enough in the forest, they can just say they heard you moan. And the unpleasant side effect of the zombie virus, uh, one of many, is that as soon as you're shot, all of the virus in your blood will start to seroconvert because the virus is trying to wake you back up, even though it's going to fail. So a body that was a zombie and a body that was not a zombie are indistinguishable about 45 seconds after death. Well, I wonder if we could just talk a moment about some of the choices you made with the science and the way in which you had various possibilities before you. I mean, in a sense, you had a a limitless array of possibilities when it came to to just about every detail. Like, do zombies uh, like cold or hate cold? Do they like heat or hate heat? Uh, What what's uh, what what kind of defense mechanisms might a building have in place to uh, to repel a, a zombie attack, uh, and then and then questions like how the the science works, how the biology works, the chemistry works. Um, when you had to make those kind of specific choices, um, I should think sometimes you're thinking about if I if I make the virus do this then I can write all of these things. It makes all of these scenarios possible. If I make this choice, then I write about these things or these scenarios are possible. Um, Can you just say a word about that process? I think it's one of the most fascinating facets of what somebody like you does. So I knew I wanted my zombie virus to have started out with good intentions, to have started out as something that we made because we were trying to help. And that kind of led me to the cure for cancer, which worked as a filovirus, and to the common cold, which is the rhinovirus. At that point, I know that my zombie virus cures cancer and cures colds. Um, and from there, it was a matter of putting together everything it did. Well, why does the zombie virus get you up again? Here are 18 different possibilities. Well, 11 of them are biologically impossible, not just implausible. The other seven are biologically implausible. Three of them... Result in zombie squirrels. That's not okay. So we've got three that depend on a certain body mass, a certain body-to-brain ratio, and a certain time after death. I don't want dead zombies. My zombies are actually alive, which is why they're called infected a lot of the time. They're still human. They're not technically classically zombies. So I rejected the one that actually required a certain amount of time after death and wound up settling on a virus that infects everything mammalian, but only harms you if you are 40 pounds or more, that is generally in a neutral state. So it's in people, it's curing colds and curing cancer, but it's not zombifying them, uh, which is a behavior that is demonstrated by some viruses in the, lot, in, in the wild. You'll have viruses that actually seroconvert between two states after they've entered the body. Um, a virus that thinks it's helping, 
which is part of the problem. It thinks it's helping. So your immune system thinks it's helping. And then when it suddenly starts hurting, your immune system doesn't know how to deal. It doesn't have time to react, which is why amplification happens. Hmm. It was a very long process. It involved a lot of virology courses and reading an enormous number of books on molecular biology and made me a very fun dinner conversationalist for a couple of years. <laughs> I bet. And what's ultimately so interesting, too, is that this is, needless to say, a, a, a dark story. I mean, in a largely dark world, and yet it's a world that to some extent we recognize, and, mm-hmm. uh, and there are signs of life and, 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 and glimmers of hope. But uh, at the heart of it is this very uh, potent dose of reality. At one point, someone talking to uh, our narrator, again, Sean, uh, says, the last year doesn't unhappen. Life doesn't go back to the way that it was. Life never goes back to the way it was, no matter how hard we try to make it. Uh, this is the reality which so many of the characters are, are living with, that this is a world utterly transformed. And they're, uh, unlike some uh, films and books which skim the surface, uh, this book shows us what it's like when the world is irretrievably altered. That was the goal, so thank you very much. The book again is called Deadline. It is the second in a, thri- a, a trilogy, and mm-hmm. uh, this book is out in uh, paperback from Orbit Books. As I read reviews on Amazon, I was certainly reminded, uh, even though I'm not really into ebooks, that uh, most of the world is. One of the first reviews, all of them very positive, but the first review said, I started Deadline and couldn't stop clicking until I was done four hours later. <laughs> so reminded me that there is more than one way to read this book. So uh, however you take it in, um, you may find yourself, as I was, very pleasantly surprised. This is a fascinating book beautifully crafted. Mira Grant, I appreciate you joining me today on The Morning Show. This has been so interesting. I was happy to come. Thank you so much for having me.